0: hello you are most welcome to episode 165 of the game pit podcast a podcast about modern tabletop gaming my name's ronan and it's a flyy soloy one again today so you can expect to hear my voice for the next roughly hour or so and i am going to be giving you reviews of eight games that i have been playing recently you're very welcome on board what's going on with the podcast you're going to hear from me for a couple of episodes. Then that long delayed review of 2020 is coming up. It's been recorded again. Hope nothing goes wrong. And then hopefully we're going to get Sean back for a couple of reviews here and there. And uh, maybe a little mix up of formats again and we'll see what's going on. So that's what's coming up ahead. Um, the other thing I need to tell you about is that... I was talking to Sean today, and he was talking about watching one of the Dice Tower four-square reviews. It happened to be for Cascadia, which we've both played and we'll be talking about in uh, later episodes. But he referred directly to the scores that each of the reviewers gave the game. I was a couple of eights, and there's a seven, and what have you. And I said to him something that was in my head, and I said, Do you think we should give out scores during our reviews on the podcast? And he said straight away, Yes, because he loves it when there's a score then the second thing i said was okay if we do though the first reviews i ever read of anything at all any media whatsoever will have been for computer games back from when i was a young kid and they always reviewed them out of 100 which is not what the board game geek system is and not generally how i tend to think of games and i said but to be honest if i was going to do it i'd want to review the games out of 100 and he said yes that's exactly how i do it as well so in a very rare moment we've come together and said we are going to give the games a score at the end of each of our reviews now of course i'm going to give some provisos i'm going to try and give some scale to this as well some clarifications. really i mean it's a score after a few plays now the reviews you get are after two plays four plays six plays it's rarely more than six unless it's a very quick game it can be as many as a dozen but it's that's that would be rare so the number of games we've played tones rather we've played these games is generally between two to six seven that is still a first impression for me and most importantly it's very difficult for a game to get into my upper echelons of my estimations Having only played it that number of times because I've been playing for a long, old time, I've got lots of plays, and generally it's going to take a game to hang around for 15, 20, 25 plays till I really, really start to love it and really start giving it those upper echelon scores. Now, it's not impossible, some games make amazing first impressions, but for me, very high scores up into the 90s are going to be, I think, very rare. So, what does the scoring going to mean? Well, I'm going to take the 50 mark. They're right there in the middle. Some people are reluctant to score low for whatever reason. And that they like board games and they don't want to be negative whatever. A game that I would score 50 is a game that I would play again. I wouldn't be rushing out to play it. If it was suggested, I'd be like, mm, okay. Below 50, the less willing I am to play that game again. So the, the further you're getting away from 50, the more likely I am to kick up a fuss. Getting way down towards the 30s, 20s which will get handed out at some point, I'm sneaking towards a veto when we get down there. Any game from 50 up to 75 is going to be varying levels of what we might call good to me. And anything 75 and up, that's going to be a very good score. Uh, And again, the higher away you are from these marks, the more it's going to mean. Now still, please don't read too much into the scores we give. I know some people are going to love this idea. Some people are going to hate this idea. I'm sure we'll get some feedback from everyone first impressions a rough thought but more importantly and something we all know as you listen to watch read reviews pay attention to the content because let's say back in those computer games back in the day I don't know, a point-and-click adventure that got 88 would not be as good to me now as a turn-based strategy game that got 65. I'd probably enjoy that more because I now I know my own taste. That might be not a great example. But listen to what we say. Listen to why I've sort of enjoyed it and why I, said I haven't and why I've given that particular score because you might, and I'm sure lots of times, will disagree with me. Okay, having got all that out there, I'm going to crack on. And the first game I'm going to review is Cryo. It's two to four players, 90 minutes roughly long, designed by Tom Jolly and Luke Laurie and coming from Z-Man Games. In Cryo, before the game starts, there's been a colony ship that's been sent off out to form a colony somewhere in the galaxy. However, there are rival factions on board that ship and it's crash-landed onto an ice planet. There's been some sabotage go on and it's the beginning of the day. And as the day's going to go on, this ice planet is going to get colder and colder, obviously, as the sun goes down. And you have to get as many of the pods which are what they're called of survivors of your own color of your faction into these caverns which are under the surface to keep them warm and keep them alive and that's the main priority of the game it's the main way to score points we'll talk about score points in a sec but that's the overall themes this crash you're trying to salvage bits from the wreckage and you're trying to move your pods down into this cave system The way the game actually works is that everyone has got three drones, they're your three workers, and you can either put one of those drones out or you can recall all the drones you have out on the board, be it one, two or three, depending upon how you want to time that action. When you put the drones out, there are four sections on the board and in each of the sections there are spaces which are linked to action spaces and you can take an action from the space adjacent to where you are. Now a lot of these are that there are little chits and there are piles of them so, so what each action space does varies throughout the whole game is people take these chits from the top and the first thing you do is when you take a chit you can just scrap it The reason you might want to scrap it is there are five different resources that you're running during the game that will let you do all the various actions. There's like bio that's going to let you rescue pods. There's crystals that you can turn into energy. There's energy itself, which you're going to need to power your vehicles to move pods down into the caverns. There's technology, which will let you do stuff with cards. And there's nanos, which are basically wild. So you're managing all these tracks of resources, and one of the basic ways is just go down, take an adjacent chip, throw it away and say, right, I'll take the two organics that were on there and move your track up by two. The other things you can do with those little chits are you can put them in spaces on your own board. And those spaces are going to activate when you recall drones. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about them when you get there. But that's more of a forward plan. Obviously, when you scrap it, it's a one-off and it's gone. You can forward plan a bit for yourself in how exactly you want to go through cryo by placing things onto your board and triggering costs and benefits to certain uh, recalls that you can do. There are actions though that you can do. There is, like I said, there are spaces where you can collect pods. Now, the pods are set up in each of the four spaces. There are three spaces with your pods in, and everyone's pods are set in. There's two in each space basically. The reason this is important is that firstly, you need to get the pods back onto your platform and into vehicles to get them down into caverns. However, also, When uh, people recall their drones, they're going to be able to do something called sabotage on occasion. And when sabotage happens, it's going to wipe out pods that are in particular areas. So you can see that the sabotage token is threatening an area. So there's a bit of a timing element to this to when you want to take pods out and not leave just your zone area. Because then that's an obvious sort of target to be sabotaged, if you like. So you can do that. You can also take actions to put your pods into a salvage space, which again is going to trigger when you take your drones back and that's just going to give you sort of an incoming resources we can start sort of triggering off again which way you're going to try and play this game because there's a couple of different strategies you can do as well as managing these resources imagine where your pods are recalling them and getting them into salvage to get more resources there's also cards in the game so i've mentioned vehicles there and the cards have vehicles on them but they also have other uses and there are card actions on the board so sometimes what you're doing is not an action it's not dealing with resources it's taking this um are they taking it for one-off card action or putting a one-off card action somewhere on your board to trigger as a recall action or also the spaces where you could spend tech to take card actions and taking the card actions are either basically drawing one or playing one now the thing with the cards is that they're multi-use so yes they can become your vehicles when they become your vehicle they slide down the bottom of your board they have a certain amount of space and carry a certain number of pods and also that vehicle will have a special ability that it can do. It might be able to go further, or it might be able to split the pods up better, or whatever. But each vehicle, and there's eight different cards in the game, and there's eight different vehicles. Equally, these cards also have upgrades on the top. So whenever there's a vehicle, let's say the crab vehicle, it has the same upgrade on top. And I can choose to play the card not as a vehicle, but as an upgrade, and it slides onto the top of my board, and that gives me a game-breaking power. For example, when I go into space, I can take the two actions on the side of it rather than just one or wherever it might be it basically sets you up for your own little special powers you don't start with any you choose what upgrades to use the other thing they can be done with it is that there are missions on these cards and as missions you can sign them under the left hand side of your board they go face down no one else knows what you have and then at the end of the game they're going to score your points for having done certain things Now, you don't get a lot of cards, and you're going to need someone's vehicles, but upgrades are really handy. Whoever mission score your points at the end. So you can see there's like a pull around how much you're going to do these cards. And you might think you're going to set them all up and get all your upgrades out and get loads of vehicles and loads of missions. But actually, I said the game's 90 minutes. It's very pacey, and it is a race. And the way the game ends, it can end in two different ways. Either the time can run out, because every time someone recalls, they have to take one of these tokens. either gives them a resource or it does that sabotage action and then another one comes out, and there's a certain number of chits laid out, depending upon the player count. When you get to the last one, when it gets activated, that's it, the game suddenly ends. The other way the game can suddenly end is if players, all of their pods, are either in the caverns, or have been destroyed by sabotage. Again, The game will suddenly end that's it all over so there's a race aspect here when you're considering how to use the cards you cannot use all the cards in all the ways and if you spent loads and loads of actions to build up your cards you'd actually be way behind and you'd be vulnerable to sabotage you wouldn't have rescued your pods and you wouldn't have done the salvage actions you won't be getting incoming resources and there's a balance here as to which way you want to go i keep talking about it it's a quick game it's a tight game but that doesn't mean that you're all doing the same thing at the same time So i keep talking about recall and i was talking about putting these chips on your own board because very similar to dwellings of eldervale another luke lorry game that when you take a drone back there are different columns on your board and in your left hand one you can set up and you can get stuff for free so let's say i took a, a double crystal token and put it in my left hand column when i put a drone back into that column when i take it back and i could choose any column i want i would get two crystals for free in all the other ones, I can get stuff, I can get pods, I can get these nanites, wild resources, I can get whatever I want, or I can, some of them I can customise myself, but there's a cost on those ones. So by taking two chips off the board, I could put a cost off one crystal and underneath that, two tech, and when I put a drone, when I recall into that column, i pay one crystal and I'll get two tech. So you can set yourself up again in certain ways to be like, all right, I've got an income in this, which means I'm gonna be good at that. And I'm gonna be, this is how I'm gonna pick my way through this puzzle. The last thing you can do on the board when you are putting them out is that you can choose to go down to an area. Now there's two ways of getting into these caverns. One is a scouting action where you have to have a pod available on your board and a couple of resources. And then you can flip over one of the face down caverns because apart from the first ones they start face down. And you flip it over and you get a little reward for doing that. When you flip over these caverns you're going to see that there's a cost for going in there and there's also a point scoring on there. Now the cost is if you take the other action which will allow you to get pods into caverns which is straight up you put them into the delivery. You have to have pods on the vehicle. You say, this is how far I'm going. You have to pay energy depending on how far into this cavern complex you go because it's sequential. And then if you pay the energy, this cost is what you have to pay in order to be able to put pods into that particular cavern so you stop your vehicle between two caverns out or possibly three but two caverns and you say right if i want to go in this one i have to pay these resources no matter what the resource cost is you can put as many pods as you like in there so if it costs two crystals paid crystals you can put all the pods from your vehicle in there for that cost and on the other side there'll be a different cost you have to be aware of that when you're planning where you want to put them in The points are points for the person who has most pods in there at the end of the game. It's a cavern majority scoring. There's usually a second place scoring as well, but not always. So there's an area majority thing going on at the end of the game. And you're scouting to unveil or waiting for someone else to scout to unveil, but it does put a, a pod in a space. It gives them presence in a cavern quite cheaply. And then you're plotting where to put your vehicles. Do you have enough energy? Where are other people likely to go? and so on and so forth. And the caverns have got different values, so people are gonna sort of direct to different ones. I said the game's gonna end in one of the two ways, either the day finishes or someone has used all their pods. Then you're gonna score, all your pods you've got in caves are worth two points each, all the pods you've taken out of the wreckage but it's just on your platform it's called, are gonna score a point each. The upgrades and vehicles you've still got in play are gonna score you a point each. The reason I say still in play is because everything can be scrapped you can scrap a card every turn so if i've got an upgrade that i've used the power i don't want it anymore i can pluck it out and say well actually it's got this scrap value and throw it away and get the scrap value so there's a nice sort of recycling thing going on where wherever you've used cards you can actually use them again to get their value in scrap which might trigger something else off for you to be able to do especially towards the end also those pods you put into salvage to give you an incoming resources when you're recalling you can start recalling them back out as well The sort of Build up this little engine and then start breaking it down to maximise how many things you're getting into the case, which is all very handy. And finally, it's that cavern scoring majority, by the way, to finish off how to score points. I've talked a lot there, as is typical, and I hope it wasn't too confusing. You get the idea that you put out drones, you recall them, you can get stuff when you recall, and you're just trying to get these these pods out of danger of being sabotaged into caverns. It's quite a complicated teacher cryo it's certainly not one that I do to introductory gamers because there's a, a flow to it that is very gamely once you start playing if you've played a few games I think it clicks in quite quickly actually and it's much more intimidating in the first couple of rounds than it is after 20 minutes of playing and you start going okay that's interesting one of the things that it's then harder to grok and I think is why the teach is a bit more complicated than the complexity of the rules would suggest is that the strategy is a bit opaque and one of the reasons for that is is because you've got many many options of what you can do it's wide open however you've got very limited time and not only that, but until you've played the game a couple of times and you start getting an idea of some rhythm to the game and how it can go and how it can finish and how new caverns can get suddenly opened up but it might take a while and your ability then to read how this particular play is going it's going to be very difficult for you to start maximising and thinking this is what I want to do, this is where I want to go. You're also going to have to read your cards, you going to have to see how your powers combo together and how you might piggyback of what other people possibly are doing. I like the fact that a lot of decisions are transient. Like I say, you can put something down for an upgrade, use that power for half the game, and then go, right, I'm not getting much use of that power. Pluck the card out and go, now I'll take the resources from this card, and that'll allow me to kick on from there. And that's another thing that I think comes with a few plays of the idea of, you're used to building an engine where all the pieces stay in place, but in this, they don't. You're just grabbing bits of the ship, sort of jerry-rigging up a bridge, if you like, using that bridge, and then taking it apart again for the bits that you need to use somewhere else. And all of that means that the timing of small moves is quite important, but also the timing of big things is quite important, and being aware of when the game might end, and how other people are directing towards the end of the game. I cut a game really, really short when I was dead last, because I had had a lot of my pods sabotage, and it occurred to me, and then I was like, oh, do you know what, I can rush this, and then in two or three moves, boom boom, 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 suddenly I got a load of pods down, and the people who were whooping me lost just because I was able to take that timing off and I think also that I got away with that because people weren't that familiar with the game at the time, I think it was our second game therefore it's something that the the gameplay and the strategy and and the interaction between each other evolves as you keep going and playing there's definitely a feeling of time ticking and definitely a feeling that this day is progressing and we're all in peril, we have to get this done before time runs out I will say you are mostly focused on yourself I was talking about being aware of others and timings and what they're trying to do it doesn't mean you're playing the other players you're playing the game and you're playing your own game you just have to have an awareness of the other players the level of interaction is not as high as it could be overall I think Cryo is really good it's one of those that this is a very good first impression if it were to continue to develop on the sort of small enjoyment increases and developments and see new ways of playing that have happened in the first few games it can go up and up and up if it were to get a bit stale i still think it'll stay as a very good game that doesn't outlast its welcome that's done in 90 minutes has plenty of thinking in it and there's a bit of sort of oh you're doing that oh you're doing that oh everyone feels like they're doing better than me so i recommend crow i think it's a very good euro from 2021 i'm gonna be surprised if there's money that's out better than it and for the dreaded <laughs> or possibly welcome first score to be handed out by the game pit in our reviews after 100 i think it's over 170 episodes we've actually done i'm going to give Cryo a score of 81 which means it's very good and highly recommended i'm going to go on to another euro now this one is embarcadero one to four players 90 minutes from adam Buckenham and ed marriott and from renegade game studios now quick history lesson there's a place called yerba buena cove of san francisco which is a real shallow cove where ships could come up and, and it you know be docked and what have you by wharfs and that was what was happening now and then up until the gold rush in san francisco when around different areas especially around the pacific and what have you captains of ships were getting paid a, or offered a lot of money to take people to san francisco for no matter what, to the point where it was worth them taking all these fares and just sailing their ship to San Francisco with no further plan as to what to do with it. And when they got there and they'd taken their money, a lot of them found that either they fancied taking part in the gold rush or their crew would all jump ship because they wanted to take part in the gold rush or it wasn't worth them sailing anywhere because they didn't have a fare or they didn't have any cargo to take anywhere because it was such a huge influx of people and everyone was heading inland and there was, it was all the other industries were basically getting abandoned at the time these ships that were left around this area around this shallow cove various things happened to them some of them got left oh you look after this i'll be back in a couple of months once i've got a fair and the fair never arrives some of them were sold off some of them were deliberately scuttled because if you scuttled a ship apparently onto the bottom of the sea you then owned the land at the bottom of the sea and then people filled in earth around them and then created new bits of land and then with these ships New buildings started getting built, sometimes within the ship, sometimes in the wreckage of the ship. Sometimes people just extended wharfs or threw landfill and clay. And this cove eventually got filled up. And right now, under San Francisco, there's a few dozen ships that are part of sort of the layers underneath of the infrastructure. And then there's a cable car thing goes through the hull of a the ship. There's a hotel built on top of a ship. A lot of the actual ships themselves were wiped out in a big fire in 1851. But they are part of, of what's going on under your feet as you walk around San Francisco. Okay. Or this particular little area off it. There's that story. Why am I telling you this story? It's something I hadn't heard of until I played the game. And then I did a little look up. and read a National Geographic article on it. I'm no expert. Because that's what Embarcadero is all about. You are pretty much... Uh, land investors or people looking to take advantage of the fact that there's these ships and there's the fact that the city is spreading out into the into the sea more or less reclaiming the land and you're going to try and do that claim ships build buildings on these ships and try and make and score the most points make money basically out of this this weird situation that really did happen in effect what happens is you start with a hand of five cards which you draft yourself and the cards are either going to be ship cards or building cards and then each turn in the game over three rounds you only get 15 turns each you're going to play a card be a ship or building or you're going to scrap them for their scrap value which is links back into cryo scrapping cards for their scrap value then you're going to buy a card ship or building because there's a market of each and then you're going to store a card from your hand reducing your choices each round because if you play one and store one and buy one you're going to end up with one fewer choice next round and down and down and down to the last round everyone's only got one card left in their hand and they play or scrap a card and they buy one to store the ones that you store in the first second round are going to end up being your hand for the next round At the end of the game you you stored are going to score you points according to how much they've cost you over the course of the game okay what you're doing with these cards are if you play a ship card as a ship it's going to have a certain size and you get a tile and you place that tile onto the board and you're docking that ship you've taken control of it or ball it off the captain or whoever it might be and say all right i'll look after that for you yeah that's now mine the tile will go along you can put it along ne- next to wharves. and depending on how many players there are there's a various number of wharfs in the game which is one of the scoring mechanisms and you have to pay money to be alongside a wharf or you can put it alongside other ships and start to build up this area now the other thing that ship cards do is as well as giving you this sort of claim off of a blank area on the board is that they generally give you resources and why do you want resources because the other cards are buildings in order to build buildings you have to have resources not score them just have them in your tableau. so I've, I've got one of those i've got one of those there you go i can now build this building problem with buildings is while they might score you points which generally they do or get you some sort of good thing for building them you need to have built these building blocks onto your ship foundations in order to play a building it gets confusing i'm going to try not to emphasize the point but there are blocks you put on the ship i had a ship that a footprint of four by four if i got four blocks on that sort of ground floor if you like then i could build a building which is basically putting a roof on it and saying those four blocks are now that building then if i build four more blocks on top of it i would have a space to build a first floor building and then if I put four blocks on top of that via the game mechanisms, by scrapping cards, by building things, by getting various bonuses from different stuff, I could build a second floor building. And you can build up and up until you have up to four levels of buildings, basically. So there's building blocks, which are not assigned, but to build a building is like capping them with a roof and preparing it to be built on top of. It's probably harder to uh, to get from a, an audio message that definitely easier to look at but that's the way it works it means there's a 3d aspect to building up these buildings and in fact some buildings are, are much more valuable if they're on higher levels as you get to apartments and stuff like this that if the higher up you put them the better off it is so you're trying to claim ships to claim land you're trying to get bonuses in order to get blocks on them and then you're just trying to build buildings to actually get the points but you've only got 15 turns to do all this So I talked about scrapping. Why would you scrap? Because basically, scrapping gives you those other things you need, be it adding blocks to ships or completed buildings or giving you the ability to fill in land around your ships or maybe to extend wharfs. I said wharfs are linked to scoring. Basically, whoever's got the most blocks next to a wharf gets scoring on there and then the second place and third place. And uh, so extending a wharf, basically the longer the wharf, the more points each person's going to get for having blocks next to it. There's other things you could do. You need money in order to buy the cards because they cost you when you're buying them from the market. You can get that from scrapping. There's also uh, a rental aspect to some of those ships or most of the buildings that you build Give you rent each turn the amount of resources you're dealing with here is not large it's a few dollars here and there and then the resource themselves is one two or three of each but you're not dealing with huge amounts of things every decision you make counts and every ability to get hold of a resource that you can possibly do is also very important also the ships give you resources but sometimes to build the better buildings you need to actually sink a ship because the ship can't take the weight you need to sort of settle it onto the bottom and that means that you put a sunk ship token on meaning you no longer get access to the resources of that ship and some of the timing of that is going to be quite important for you as well as making sure of course that you have the correct layout of blocks and roofs and spaces where you want them in order to build the buildings that you want to build as you do stuff there's a council track you can go along which as you go along gives you little bonuses as you, as you get by and that is also going to be linked to scoring because at the end of each round you're going to score four goals there are goal cards you draw them out and there's going to be a different one each round and they might be linked to particular types of buildings which really only matter for scoring or triggering off other buildings that might say get two dollars for every this particular type of building you have or they might be linked to various things you can do you know, who's got the most sunk ships is going to score more points than whoever has got fewer off them there's also being on the council track. If you're ahead of other people, you get a couple of points, it's not many. And then there's the wharf's majority scoring, which you might be fighting over. At the end of the game, buildings, as well as scoring your VP, some of them have end game scoring conditions that will score you points per having this or per having that. There are lots of different varieties of that, and those end game scoring buildings is one of the things that's going to drive your strategy is how you want to build up your buildings in Embarcadero. You score for how far along you've gone the council track. You also score like I said for those store cards and how much money they cost you. And also everyone gets a character at the beginning of the game and they're gonna have like a, a small way of scoring some points again. Not that differential to be honest, it might slightly drive where you want to go in the game so there's only 15 actions i said this was 90 minutes long i'm gonna say this is a bit longer than cryo actually and i haven't got a game of this done in under two hours yet and you think only 15 actions in two hours you might be sitting there not doing much but this game is combo tastic and trust me your brain is getting a full full workout this is much stinker than cryo cryo's got enough going on this one steps it up a level and what i was almost gonna say in complexity again it's not complexity of rules that's difficult in this it's complexity of making it work well. It's complexity of strategy and tactics and adjusting to what's available. There are these landmark buildings that become available when people cross a certain point in the council track and they can be very valuable, but it generally got a big footprint. Are you preparing yourself for those? Do they fit in with what you've done? Or is it better to ignore those and not chase those resources? When you build a building, generally gets one block put on top of it to to help you build up to the next level, just get you going some buildings they've got a bonus thing if you've got these two other resources available to you they completely fill up and then that footprint is ready to build again upon which is incredible because it can really accelerate but to get yourself in the position to do it can be quite tricky because you don't want to put out too many ship cards because you won't have played enough buildings in order to score lots of points scrapping in this game is necessary and strategic and even more so than in cryo you are going to need to do it because there are certain powers that are just not available to you unless you scrap cards and the scrap power on cards can be very very powerful but you have so few cards of course and that's another part of the strategy that you'll be sitting there looking at your hand going i really don't know what i've got three cards here and i've got six options and i don't know which is the best one to do and it's the right sort of burn that you're feeling it's got the physical aspect to it of the building up and seeing these things appear and these crazy ships get overloaded which is fantastic but also there's a spatial challenge to it so you're thinking spatially about where you're putting things and why you're putting them. Building next to others for example will push it on the council track which will get you a small bonus which might help you do the thing you've been waiting to do but haven't quite been able to because you're getting pulled in so many different directions. The one thing I say that wasn't as great was that the wharfs are a key part of the scoring, but the interaction and the fighting over the wharfs wasn't that great. It tended to be that wherever people set up their first ship next to the wharf, they tended to control that wharf the rest of the game, and it was more about nipping in for a second place or a third place here or there. Embarcadero, to me, is deliciously different. The first time I learned it and played it, my head was spinning. I was like, wow, I do not remember playing a game like this, and even now... I would find it hard to compare to other games. It's got at its heart this euro to it of, of just few actions, interaction on a board. How can I make this work without being a big sprawling mess and doing things for four hours? I just find it to be like a real brain burn of a game. The only thing really that would stop it getting again top top marks here is that sometimes. There's a bit of timing to when certain cards come out that can fall into people's lap. And sometimes you can set yourself up to do really well and score lots of points. For example, let's say I'm trying to build high-level apartments. That's the only way they'll score me decent points. And then apartments don't come out of the deck for the rest of the game. Well, there's nothing I could have done about that. And in a not two-hour very thinky Euro, that slight disappointment where I've tried something, but against everything I've tried, I just couldn't do it. But there's no way of me knowing that. A little bit of a pullback on it. We'll see how that develops with that frustration builds or ebbs away as we get more plays. So we get to the score for Embarcadero, which I like a lot. And this is the worst way to start any scoring system. But I pulled and toed and throwed I'm giving it the exact same score as Cryo because I can't split them at the moment. I've enjoyed both of them a lot in my first few plays. Both of them have got potential, both of them have got slight drawbacks, which could great or i could just get past so embarcadero also gets an 81 and i will say between cryo and embarcadero you've got two really strong games there and i recommend trying them both out okay this next one's dominant species marine two to four players chad jensen rest in peace gmt games about two and a half hours long which depends how many players you're playing with and how familiar you are with the system but two and a half hours we'll say as a minimum super excited about dominant species marine dominant species is my favorite game of all time or at least the last time i bothered to count it was this one though i'm going to try not to linger on it this is not my favorite game of all time As with dominant species, you are a particular species of animal. There are hexes on a board. There's going to become more hexes appearing and food types appear at the nexus of these hexes. You are basically trying to adapt to the growing world of different terrains and the different food types and attempt to have your cubes in the right places at the right time in order to score points. That's the huge difference between dominant species and marine. And dominant species is the right place at the right time dominant species had a set round structure where people would put out their action pawns and then the action pawns would go in an order the actions happen in order once all the pawns are out dominant species marine doesn't do that it's rolling turns it just keeps going and going and going from when you start however on your turn you're either putting pawns out or you're taking them back again once everyone's had a turn of taking them back then that's when the game resets not at the end of a set number of turns or a set number of actions also when you're putting out your pawns you must go from top to bottom and left to right so you don't have completely free reign choice of actions that you want to take and that's why you might want to put out a couple and then do a recall and then go back up to the top again. The reason also that is because that kind of breaks the rhythm of the game when you're trying to set your own rhythm while other people are trying to set their own rhythm while the game has its own rhythm to it as well. And there's all these to me discordant beats going on when you play them with Species Marine and it's very difficult for me to get into the flow of what's going on. You are able to use dominance now you don't use it to get cards in this version what you do is you get it to get special action pawns which you like to break the rules kick pawns out or take particular actions that are reserved only for the special action pawns well the other difference is between this and the original dominant species is the original dominant species, if you chose birds, for example, you could always migrate further than the other animals. If you were the spiders, you could always do a free attack action. Your powers were set. In dominant species marine, you draw three cards and you choose one, and there are 18 different traits within the game. Again, providing sort of less structure and you having to learn what everyone else's special powers are each game and sort of adapt to what they're doing and how they want to do it. Another change is that in dominant species, you could choose what tile to score on in marine do a draw basically and it tells you what tiles you could score on this turn therefore not every tile is available to be scored and when this this reset happens after everyone's had a pullback then it'll come out maybe it says two sea tiles and another one can, can be scored this turn okay If I don't happen to be in the c tiles, I'm then making a choice whether I want to suddenly try and get in there to score them on this short-term chance or, no, I won't worry about it. I'll sit tight and wait for someone else to score them. You can get it that, like, okay, Three C tiles, that would be, be very unusual. Three C tiles can be scored. There's only one C tile in play. So it's going to take a while for us to go around. And the scoring also drives cards. And the cards are the special abilities. And they can be very, very powerful, as in the original game. So if I'm not on the tiles that are available to score, I don't really have access to the cards unless I'm giving points away. Which can be the right thing to do, but can be feel frustrating to me, as opposed to the control. More control. Still chaotic, but more control I felt I had in the original one. The other thing is that as you take a card they'll get drawn off the top and they instantly get refilled and moved down sort of through and become more available depending upon how you're scoring there are events on these cards and when you turn them over they will say this now happens it could be the wiping out of particular foodstuff or uh, various different things that can happen just driven by the game that hits players unequally and you don't know when it's going to come up and also you don't play with all the cards in the game so if I happen to be based on particular foodstuff and that car comes out at the wrong time and wipes out a load of my food, I can be in big trouble. Whereas the food stuff that you're sort of based your strategy around, and I know you have to be flexible with dominant species, I've, I, I do know the game, but if your one is not in the game, you've got a huge advantage due to the fact that that's just, and it's out of our control. And maybe it comes out early, it doesn't affect me at all. Maybe it comes out late and absolutely smashes what I've tried to do. Maybe I've put my food stuff in that sea and then gone there to try and score it and then a random event has just killed that food stuff. There's a lot of things like that which mean that a lot of things vary wildly and you feel very much less in control of Marine than you do in Dominant Species. Another thing for example is that there's a food chain order in both games. In food chain order basically breaks ties, so when it comes to scoring if you've got the same number of cubes someone lower down the food chain you'd win and get more points. In Dominant Species the turn order mitigates that to some degree as in the weaker animals go first, but you can fight over turn order. But generally, the, you know, the start going first. In this, because there's no set turn structure, once someone's gone first, that's it. You're just rolling. You're just rolling, and the reset will come at a point when people have taken back, and you won't be first the next time there's a reset. It just rolls to the next player. Doesn't feel to me like that mitigates enough. Certainly not. I mean, there's people who've played this a lot and they're saying, oh, yeah, but actually it's the because right at the beginning you can do this, do that, get on the C, get 10 points, blah, blah. blah." To me, it didn't feel like enough of a mitigation. It really felt unfair to lose every single draw throughout the whole game because they got to go first in the first turn. Other opinions do, in fact, exist. Okay, I've written a lot of stuff down. I don't want to draw this out for too long i felt like this was really hard work i felt it was hard work to fight the random i did there was not enough structure within it to me to get a rhythm of how i was playing to be able to have foresight to be able to plan it felt hugely tactical for such a long and hard working game and therefore my score for domus species marine is a 39 And i cannot recommend this one and it is a disappointment and you're probably going to hear about it in our review of 2021 right it's a big game episode this one because i'm going to go to another euro here and this one is fayum one to five players a very specific playtime given of 110 minutes to 140 minutes that's specific enough for anyone designed by freedom and freeze from 2f spieler fayum is set in ancient egypt and the pharaohs ordered the development of an area And what you're going to do as players, all of you together in this area on the shared board, you're going to be removing the crocodiles from there in order to produce resources and then build up an infrastructure of settlements, towns and industry. In order to score the most points. Now the thing with this is it's all done under the Pharaoh's order. So no one owns anything on the board in Fayoum. Once something has been built it's available to all players to exploit. The way you're going to do that is everyone starts with the hand of cards. Everyone has the same hand of cards. And on your turn you're either going to play a card. You're going to buy a card or you're going to retrieve your cards from your discard pile. When you play a card you're going to start by clearing off crocodiles. Collecting one of the three basic resources in the game and slowly building up those resources in order to build roads or build settlements to give the infrastructure to this area of Egypt. When you buy a card, you're looking then to take advantage of what is already been built or what is going to be built and slip it into your own deck of cards to make your own strategy as to how you can continue to get resources, specific ones that fit how you're going to plan to score points. Now, the way the cards work is that there's they're all numbered from 1 to 120-something or other, and they go into a market. And it's Power Grid style. And now, Of the eight cards that are available, when you draw a new card, if it's in the bottom four numbers, it becomes available for buy-in. If it's in the top four numbers, it bounces one down into the bottom four, which is now available for buy-in. If you know Power Grid, you'll understand the future power station market and the current power station market although this one's much more varied because there are more cards in the game the other thing is that when you're buying one of these cards it's not an auction there's a set price and it just the further down they've dropped to the left the cheaper they are and during certain times in the game when people take an admin turn basically reset and pull their cards back in the hand certain cards are going to get kicked out the market so it's always flowing and not all the same cards are going to be in the game although it's always the same deck for each game when you buy these newer cards it's basically going to allow you to sort of get resources quicker Get more money in your hand quicker by doing revenue getting hold of wild resources like roses or more advanced ones like fish you're going to start to be able to put workers not just in fields for resources but into towns which maybe can get you to access more resources or more money when a worker goes in there however they block that particular town or that particular farmstead that's been built people are going to have to wait to either build more of that infrastructure or until that worker is taken off for them to be able to use their cards for going into towns. Generally the infrastructure tends to build up quicker than use the workers until the very end of the game but You can't never claim a town. You've just got a car that says you can go to any town with a worker, put it on there. The workers are everyone's. They're not your own. There's just a pool of them that is limited. And you say, oh, this goes on. Oh, let me look on the board. This town here, doesn't matter which one. And you get some stuff for it. So it's kind of an odd system. We don't have ownership of anything other than the stuff you've been able to collect for yourself. So, over the course of this, you're going to gather resources, refine resources, you're going to swap resources around, you're going to get into towns, you can go to building sites for the Pharaoh, and then you go to workshops, and eventually you're going to be leading feasts and parades, and those are the more advanced cards, where all these things you've been doing over time allow you to get access to many, many more victory points. The point at which I'm talking about the admin turns is when you take cards back. The way that works is that you're going to do like a little wipe depending on the number of players in the card market the top three cards in your discard pile are going to come back into your hand and then you can pay more money to bring more cards into your hand but certainly a large part of the strategy is well these cards i don't want so i need to pay them first at whatever point during the game i've upgraded i've got a better version of this that's the first card i've got to put down because i want to leave it in my discard pile and not have to pay to get to it however sometimes you make a mistake and then have to pay to go through and take cards from the top because you've buried one that actually you really need badly now to <laughs> so get in that timing right is quite important This is also how workers get removed from the board and you can choose one or two workers to remove from the board or none if you want to, but you get paid for doing so. And if you've set yourself up to put workers in a certain type of infrastructure, obviously you're going to take them off that infrastructure. In the tighter games, later on in the game, sometimes you're not going to want to take them off infrastructure because you know I know if I take them off two towns, there's no three towns available on the board. Well, then Sean's going to jump into town and then Rachel's going to jump into town and those towns are not going to be available to me anymore. So it can get the removal of workers becomes kind of very tricky and towards the end of the game can be vital. The last cards to come out are the real big point scorers. Also, they come out with these disaster cards and they were set aside in a separate sort of deck. So they're not going to come out towards the end of the game. What the disaster cards means are that when all the disaster cards in the game are out on the board, then there's no more admin turns. You can no longer pick up cards after that you keep playing the cards from your hand until you decide to pick up this disaster and i don't know why it's called disaster it just means you're going to score a set number of points for having picked up that particular card so it's all about building up towards the cards at the end of the game and that's how you're going to score your lots of points so how is fire well like a lot of freedom and freeze games there's a very interesting pattern to it but the pattern is very much set for me i can always. Feel the designer's hand at work when i play a freedom and freeze game i can feel how he wants me to play and the fact that these cards are structured in certain ways mean that for me games have fallen into a certain pattern and this is a game like a lot of his that i admire rather than enjoy greatly i do feel like i'm basically just making my own engine each time and running it out but i can never quite tell where i'm going to get to with that engine or what it's going to end up doing i'm just generally gathering a lot of stuff in the hope that when i get to the end i'll be able to hand a lot of this stuff in for a lot of points and that's pretty much what happens the only real big swings i've seen at the end of the game is if workers run out and people haven't finished playing all their cards and they're left sitting with a third of their points still in their hand because they haven't been able to play their last two big cards just because something quite arbitrary has happened i don't even know why there's a set number of workers in the game it doesn't feel very Fair automatic to me. I think Fayum's a very clever game. I think it's definitely worth playing. It's just not one that I've fallen in love with. And I am going to give it a score of 68. Sean's just walked in the room and pointed and laughed. I can't tell if he likes that or not. <laughs> so. Mere seconds for you, a new day and a change of venue for me. That was Sean getting up after a night shift, and we got too busy nattering for me to continue recording. And then I've went out to play a game, fantastically, and we played a four-player game of Anno eighteen hundred, the Martin Wallace Collective tile resourcey conversiony. Ah, it's interesting. I've got a lot of thoughts about that game. Too many to talk about it after just after just one play. So, but you're going to get my thoughts about that sometime later but anyway let's get back to i've got four more games to go and then a quick as usual overview of what's come into my collection these ones will be quicker those were four fairly hefty games i know it took a while these ones probably not quite so much weight to them although pan am two to four players 60 minutes prospero hall group and published by funko games is a game that certainly made a splash what's it all about each of the players is going to be building up an airline and in effect all you're trying to do is make money in order to buy pan am stock because at the end of the game whoever owns the most pan am stock wins and that's it nothing else matters you're playing over seven rounds it's worker placement there are only five places you can put your workers in but the majority of these places actually are bids so there's a four spot price track and when you place your worker you choose what spot you want to go in and obviously you must go higher up than the one worker that's already there and if you go higher than someone then their worker gets kicked back out to them and the round doesn't finish until all those sort of bids are resolved and there's only one worker in each of the bidding areas if there even is one and then there's a couple down the bottom that aren't actually bids but it's all about balancing how much money you spend in order to build up your airline and then you're balancing also your income as opposed to pan am are going to spread across Across the board so the board is a map of the world when you're bidding you're bidding for the right to by airports which gives you the rights to fly out of a city on any of the routes that go through that city or you're bidding on cards now the cards have got the names of the cities on them if you have the card of a city it in effect works like an airport an airport gives you a tiny amount of income the card also gives you the rights however also you can throw cards away of the same colour to do a one-off I claim this end of a route and you need both ends of a route to be able to claim it or you can throw any two cards of the same colour away to claim any city so there's a balance between what becomes available because there's lots of cities on the board there's only four cards available each turn. You're trying to find ways to... Efficiently claim routes, and obviously, you're trying to get like airports that have got lots of routes coming out of them. In order to claim a route, there's an action to do it to claim a route, but you also have to have a plane that's off a high enough level to claim the route because the routes are of different levels one, two, three, and four. And the level three and four planes are not available till later on in the game, so you can't start doing the big, huge routes. Um, so, you put the plane down off the right level, you show that you've got rights for the cities at either end of it, and then there's an actual action to claim a route. And you, what you do is, once all the bids are resolved, you then go around the board. And you resolve them in the order that they are one, two, three, four, and five. And in claiming these routes, what you're gonna do is you're gonna pump up your income, which will then happen at the final phase of the round. And then you look at how much money you've got, and you decide whether you're gonna buy any of these shares or you're gonna keep that money to invest later on into still building up your infrastructure. The price of the shares is going to vary, and that's going to be because there's going to be an event at the beginning of each round. The seven rounds have each got four possible events in them, and you only have one of each time, so you not, don't know exactly what the events are going to be, but they are structured in a logical way which kind of takes you through the development of the airline industry. As well as affecting the price of the shares, also, those events are going to tell you how Pan Am are going to spread out. So, Pan Am start in Miami, and there are three routes that they go along, and each event will show you how many times you roll the expansion dice. And when you roll the expansion dice, it'll come up with one or two different, uh, so they're just patterned lines. It says, right, it goes in that direction. So you can semi-predict where Pan Am are going to go. And you can more or less say over the course of the game, they're going to get a certain distance along each of these expansion routes they go along. And some of them are more weighted, more likely to expand. They're more likely to go through South America, for example, and across the Pacific than they are across into Europe. And you're thinking about that because getting eaten up by Pan Am Removes the income you have from the route that they have claimed, you have claimed, and then they take off you, but it gives you a one off bonus in money. Obviously, towards the end of the game, you want that one off bonus in money because income is less valuable because there are fewer rounds of income to come. However, at the beginning, you start with some money. Once you spent it, you might also want that back. The other thing to think about is when you use planes in order to claim these routes, when Pan Am take it, you get your plane back so there's a balance between you think in a lot of games if you're trying to claim routes the more planes i have the more routes i can claim the better off i am in panam there's a limit depending on how you want to play on how many planes you want because you don't want too many sitting around on your board just sitting still and not doing anything. And sometimes you can find yourself like, oh, all my level 2 planes have come back to me and now there's no way I can use them all again and I've wasted money buying too many planes. And trying to find that balance is quite interesting in itself. Now, the thing about it is that everything's not predictable. You don't know what cards can become available, therefore what routes are in effect. Easier but also really available because there there is a very much a limit to what you can do there. Also, you don't know exactly how Pan Am are going to expand and you don't know exactly what the events are going to be. So you're kind of drifting with this. There's there's a bit of randomness going on that you have to flow with. People can nip in. You cannot claim an area. You cannot like sort of go, right, I'm, I am the person who's in Europe because I've got this airport and I've got that card. And now I'm I'm building up my route so that Europe is my area. Because anyone can claim a card or two and suddenly go now i claim that route that you've been planning to build and it doesn't matter if it's nowhere near one of the other routes That's, that's not at all any part of it you can build anywhere it's easier if you have the infrastructure if you have an airport really but anyone can jump in so you have to be aware of this cutthroat thing that you can jump and grab the areas that other people have been sort of desperate to get but it's a 60 minute game and it's not that heavy it's not that long it's not that strategic you're just kind of rolling with the blows it does feel like a dogfight the problem well not the problem the the interesting problem you have as you play is that it's a fine balance between I think I really need an airport this turn or I really need that that Rome card that's sitting there but if I bid it up am I gonna get enough money back to make that worthwhile but if I don't bid it up and I don't get that card sale, I don't get that airport, I'm doing nothing this round. So nothing's growing. And there are points at which you might have nothing, on especially if you get towards the end, you might have nothing on the board. Pan Am's bought everything and suddenly you're there looking around going, "Oh, well, I've got all these planes, but I haven't got any way of building routes. Because I said you can throw cards away to build routes. If you do that too much, you're left with no infrastructure. There's nothing to build off. And you can sit there going, oh. I've just completely... It almost ended my own game. I've got to start again from scratch and we're on round five out of seven. I've seen it happen, but that doesn't mean you can't win because you won't have done so well early and the stock price is likely to be lower early that maybe if you can get that big rush of money and buy the stocks, it's just that the pacing, the narrative arc can, can be different for all the players and it's likely to be different for all the players. And it doesn't necessarily reach to a crescendo. Although some of the final round events can be really big of like, right, everything gets bought by Pan Am. Whoa, big rush of money in and suddenly you're like, well, that's going to make a huge difference to everyone. What I found teaching it to people is that some people have just been completely turned off by the theme and found it very dry and been like, well, building airlines. And I like the simple look of it, but it is reminiscent of a clean cut, a 50s vision of the future sort of thing, you know, very efficient, we're very serious. Airlines, are. we're trying to convince everyone that we're very safe and this is a thing you can do. And I think maybe that turns people off a little bit. I I like it a lot, actually. Uh, the, The look of it, I like the play of it. I'm just surprised it hasn't gone over as well as I had expected with every group. And in fact, it's been quite difficult to find anyone who liked it as much as I liked it. And while I say I did like it, but I also had those moments of frustration, having that nothing worthwhile to do at certain points. So I almost say like when I'm enjoying the game, I'm really enjoying it. But I'm not enjoying it every minute of every game because of those fallow periods. And you know yourself, when you're teaching someone a game, if they're not enjoying it, it does affect your entertainment level and how much you feel and how much you're willing to then eulogize about the game like like calico always goes over well so i get very enthusiastic about calico i'm like yeah it's great great and then people get excited because of that panam i've started to get a bit more tentative i'm like "Uh, yeah but i'm not convinced now everyone's gonna love it and i i think that's actually i've allowed that to affect my thoughts on it i think it's a good game i would very rarely turn down a play of it I am less likely to sort of be one of those people who's pushing it out to everyone. If someone said to me, you want to play Pan Am, I'd be like, yeah, I definitely do. But I think I'm going to let it go. So in the end, there's highs, there's lows. I've tried to crystallise it into a score. I'm going for a 70 for Pan Am. But that is, some people are going to love it. Some people are not going to enjoy it as much. I definitely recommend giving it a try. It's not going to take long. It's not hard to learn. I love the look of it and the bits of it, and then you will find your own way with it. Next one up is Wishland. It's a one to four player, sixty to ninety minute game from Carlos Michan Amado from Lost Games Entertainment Limited. Each player is running their own theme park. It's an Action selection thing where you have a pool of workers and you're using a certain number of workers each time you want to select an action, depending upon how many people have taken that action previously, because you're either putting workers out or you're taking them back, which is kind of a theme of our games recently, right? And some of the games that we've talked about today as well. The number of stacks of Workers in a space tells you how many you have to put in your stack to go. So if there are two stacks of workers, I have to put a stack of three in in order to take an action. And you only start with four out of your ten workers. So at the beginning, it's very much a game of avoiding each other. But what you're actually trying to do is you're trying to collect cards. And your theme park is represented by this set collection of cards, where there are rides and restaurants and actors and mascots, and they all give you bonuses that fire off each other. You have some auxiliary actions as well you can do to boost yourself along certain tracks. The one interesting thing about it is that each turn, the first player doesn't actually necessarily go first. It's one of those situations where they choose where they want to go. It's, uh, if you think about old school, the fresco mechanism, where in you know, fresco you used to choose what time you woke up. If you woke up later, you got better stuff and you made people less. Anyway, that's a different game. In this one, you choose to get more bonuses, but your your actions will come later on in the turn. In terms of this set collection of what the cards actually give you, they're collecting rides. They will set sort of a card limit of how many you can have with every other card and they're going to score you straight up points. It's just your turn. There's money, by the way. You're spending money every time. You have an income each turn and you can collect money from other ways. You can get restaurants which will boost up your income. They can score you points and give you end game scoring conditions. You can get actors which will give you more visitors and happiness which means you've got these happiness tracks and visitor tracks which give you bonuses your actors can also give you more workers. i said you have four out of the ten that's how sometimes you can unlock more and have more in your pools be able to take more actions there are mascots you can collect they have their own sort of track that you go through in their own bonus vp scoring there are hotels that they've got 24 different powers they're all individual and they're going to maybe help you shape your strategy as you go through also as you're taking all these things for everything you do in the game so you're you're collecting these different cards they're going to give you all sorts of icons that score at the end of the game they're going to give you boosts on happiness there's a happiness track you go up you get stuff as you go up it they can give you visitors you go up a visitor track there are achievements as you do all of this and as you claim achievements they're going to score you points as you claim them so you have to be aware of what everyone is doing most of this card most of that card you know get to seven points on the happiness track wherever it might be there's a race in all these aspects which will allow you to claim these achievements well (laughs) scoring points at the end there's there's mascot symbols that work off each other there are other mascot symbols which also go with these actor symbols Uh, the mascot symbols can go with other symbols on cards which Their mascots sort of work as a multiplier to those symbols, but there's lots of different ones. So it can be quite hard to sort of go, right, I'm buying all, whatever it might be, cowboy hat mascots, and I'm going to buy all cowboy hat restaurants. It doesn't really work like that. It's very hard to focus on saying, this is what I'm concentrating on scoring, because there's only four cards of each type that come out. Especially if you add more players, it's very difficult to choose which ones you want. And there's a lot of symbols that score off each other. And it sounds confusing because it is confusing. And it's very difficult to focus on in the game. And the amount of points it gives you at the end is quite small. But actually, everything's quite small scoring in the game. So when you look at something, and it's an actual reaction, I guess, to go, oh, it's only worth two or three VP. Actually, get a couple of those. It's quite a big advantage on the other players. You're not scoring huge numbers of points. One of the things I find that is that as you go up tracks, you get bonuses as you go along if you make a good start you're going to get because it's it's small margins in the game you're going to get the bonuses that help you do well that boost you up again that will get the achievements that will get you the extra points and you'll get more workers and a slight edge in the beginning of trying to of just getting ahead on a track or what have you and then you are suddenly going to start getting better and better and better than the other players the whole thing overall has got the heart of some good ideas and a decent set collection game it just feels like that too much has been piled onto wishland and there's an awful lot to think about which is all very inconsequential within itself and there's there's you know 10 different things to think about going up very slightly and incrementally mentally which if you do it will combo off each other but it's not very interesting because actually in effect all i'm doing is collecting you know maybe twenty cards over the course of this whole thing 60 to 90 minutes the green hotels do give you powers but again it's difficult to plan for what powers you're going to get or how to use the powers because the card selection is very limited it suggests a lack of development a lack of sort of honing the system in and going yeah you've got a lot going on where's the fun what's the key what's the thing that actually drives the game and makes it work because it's a very flimsy base to throw lots of stuff on top of. the other sort of nail I'll, I'll say on this one is that it doesn't scale at all. And the four player games can be very, very different to the two player game. There's no more cards for four players than there are for two. Much more difficult to get combos going with four. Also there's no scaling for that action selection. So with two players it is much much easier to take actions because there's only one other person. And if they've taken a the collect thing then the board's wide open to you. In four player there's more of that rhythm where you might want to do something, but you've got to wait and you've got to try and time when other people are taking back. And all of that together says to me that, to be honest, I, th- I think, I know, this was a Kickstarter. It's a smaller company. It's a game that could have done well if it had more development behind it and a finer polish. And in the end, Wishland, for me, it looks gorgeous some of it works some of it's a bit overwrought and it's going to get a 52 which means i'd play it again and i didn't hate my time with it and i think actually it's a decent game but it's not one i'm going to rush back to another game that's come out this year is die of the dead which is a two to five player 45 minute game james allen mark stockton pitt and from radical eight games And straight up, it's a gorgeous-looking game themed around Dia de Muertos, and it's all about dice. And what you're trying to do is each player is trying to ascend their dice back to the land of the living, which means that um, from your pool of dice, which you have to get and then get into these four caskets, when you take actions, it moves the caskets around, it rolls the dice. You're trying to get nine of your dice to an ascended state and the first person to do it, basically the ninth one has climbed all the way up the steps, and they are going to be the victor. How does it work? you've got four caskets the one on the left is always open it's the only one you can see exactly how many dice and what colors are in there because everyone's got their own color of dice the next three along are always closed now the the, the, caskets are linked to four actions but only temporarily because the actions don't move but the caskets do so the green casket might be on action one this turn but action two next time and action four later on and it it will cycle round and round and in that way the dice are going to move along and they are going to be linked to different actions and you're going to try and remember how many dice of each color are in each the caskets as you're making decisions about what you want to do on your turn because on your turn you're going to choose one of the actions in the game in number one which will always be the open casket no matter what else is going on you're gonna be able to put souls into the casket it's easy if you've prepared souls before which is why action number two you get to prepare souls there are sub actions to these though and apart from number one all the other ones you get to shake up the casket if you wish to and open it and if you roll a one in there you get to move the caskets along so they all push right so number one will get its lid put on it they'll all push to the right number four which is in the most important space that's where you ascend from we'll come back to the beginning and open and you'll be able to look at it and go ah i've had four dice go all the way along and i never ascended them they're back to the beginning again i need to get these moving again to get my four dice back to the right hand side where they can actually score me points okay in number three if you choose that action, that's your chance to get rid of dice because the casket is there, you shake it up, open it, and any doubles that are in there rolled by someone, one of those dice goes, or they can't lose their last die in there. The other thing about number three is that when you do it, you can take a token, and these tokens, there's four different ones, and they have two different functions each. So You choose which function you want to use. They let you mess up or accelerate what you're doing in all of these, and they're actually very interesting because you don't get them that often, but they sort of change the timing of when you want to use them this is a very light game don't get me wrong it's light it's funny it's fun you're taking dice out of caskets you're putting them in you're shaking them up and you're hoping to get lucky when you when you shake up this casket it is fun though to pick up a casket and go and rattle it and go what I roll by opening the, the lid all of that physical thing is fun. But the, the tokens give a little bit of thought, a little bit of, oh, I want to time that. I want to do this. Or That's what three does. In four, this is how you're going to score your points. You shake it up. Whoever's got the highest die in there ascends two of their dice from the casket as long as there are two, which is why you're trying to weight the number of dice in each casket because the more you have in number four, the more chance you have of rolling it. Although, of course, like I said, you can get loads of your dice in a casket to number four and the next person just chooses to move the caskets along and back you are to number one, waiting to get them all the way along. Again, you're messing with each other, it's funny, it looks really pretty. It's a little bit pricey for the weight of game. I can see why, because they've gone for these really high production values. And certainly it attracts the eye, and it does add to the fun. And in the end, for a quick bit of crack, I wouldn't really want to play with five players because you're not doing enough stuff. I think three players is enough for this. I would give Die of the Dead a score of 72 a good filler don't expect too much from it but you're going to have a good time playing it and laughing and picking on each other my last game I didn't actually know what it was when I bought it it's called Embers of Memory and my daughter Caitlin has read the books on Pom which is themed these Sarah mass books, and it's from I think the Throne of Glass series. And she said, "Oh, Dad, there's a card game about this," and she asked to play. And you won't hear Caitlin mentioned as much as Ellie on the podcast, just for the fact that Ellie loves playing games. Caitlin will play with us, but doesn't love them as much. So we do other stuff together. We don't. Yeah, <laughs> that's just the way, obviously, being a parent works. So I said, "Yeah, sure. If it's a game you want to play, whatever it is, we'll get it. It's only a few quid, and then we'll see what it is." It turned up. I opened the rule book and I had a feeling of déjà vu because I've read these rules before. Because Embers of Memory is a remake of Ravens of Three Sashiri. Now I bought the original, and I've talked about this loads. The, the Japanese game, which came with difficult to grok rules, and was just here's the full game, here you go and play. It was reprinted by Osprey. I've never looked at the reprint. I believe it was done in that the rules were gradually introduced to you in Embers of Memory. There is a gradual introduction of the game, but I don't think it takes as long as the Ravens of Three Sashiri reprint. I don't know. But it does sort of teach you the very heart of it and then do this and then do that. And then we're getting on to the full game. But in the end, you are playing Ravens of Three Sashiri. I am conflicted on what to say about Embers of Memory. The basics and the mechanisms are a game that I adore. And I think it's a fantastic two-player limited communication co-op, which is tricky, but you do get better at it. And when you get better at it, it's actually one of the very few games in which us trying to just defeat our own score is very appealing to me. Because it's very gradual the way you can defeat it. It's like getting one or two more points actually means something. Oh, it's our best ever. With Embers of Memory, now the theme of Ravens of Three series was quite serious, but it wasn't portrayed that seriously it was a, a, about a girl getting out of a bad situation and her psyche is broken and her friend died as she's escaping and now they, her her friend is trying to come in and help her in her consciousness and maybe it says that i'm very shallow but the way it was presented was okay it's a very different theme in embers memory is very po faced the way they give it and it's about again it's about a girl who's caught in her mind she's actually being tortured and it's sort of like her, her people are helping her I, i've never read the book so i can't tell you too much more about the theme than that but the original three sashiri was like a a, a turnover leaflet there's just two pages two sides and that wasn't enough rules in this you have 25 pages of rules And very serious quotes from the book like passages from the book that are all about the pain and the agony and the torture and all that and I I may again maybe I'm saying, but it's bringing me down when I'm gonna play this game. I'm like, Wow, all right, this this, you know, we're just playing a a two player co op. I think if you put a lot of pressure on a co op sometimes, people stop having fun because they're like, Oh no, 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 stop pushing me, like just let me they get worried about what action to take and they get worried about letting each other down and to me, the presentation of it all was a bit like that. I started, I started sort of getting on top of me. I think maybe because Kate has read the books. and I don't know. Actually, I lost her. She was that affected by the theme. But, but she loves the fact that there's the characters in it. And she recognises the characters. And what am I trying to say about Embers of Memory? I think it's a strange game to have licensed. It's not a game that's going to have mass appeal. I know that these books are popular, but they're not hugely popular. It's a very strange funny mix of a game with no mass appeal with a license that hasn't got huge appeal and i just wasn't sure why they made the decision to do it and certainly i wish that they had for um, i guess in their i mean of course there's a crossover in the audiences but you're trying to appeal to people who maybe don't play that many games don't don't give them a 25 page rule book if you don't need to don't burden them with seriousness make the game fun you can still make it fun and still keep all the mechanisms. You don't have to make it this very serious thing. So in the end with Embers and Memory, when I come into rate it I'm really torn because like Ravens is like a 90 plus game. I love it. I've played it dozens and dozens of times. The presentation of this is like average at best. So I guess I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of, uh, of Embers of Memory. I've given it a score of 73 because at the heart the gameplay is fantastic but this is not the reprint that would get ravens into a big hit and lots of people playing it because it's just very strangely presented okay anyway so it was just a curious thing that I, that I picked up and i i thought it was worth mentioning there you go in terms of what's coming to do my collection i'll go quickly kickstarter one back in and it was off florence and it is complete bias because the designer is dean morris the designer of pacific rails inc and a mate of mine London on Border, an up-and-coming designer. He has several designs which are currently with publishers, I do believe, or at least publishers are sniffing around them. It is a name I think that more and more people are going to hear off. So I am keen both to support my friend and also to get in early and play his early designs because I really think that he's going to be making a big splash. It is a 1-5 to player, 90-minute Euro game in which you are attempting to influence the Medici family in Florence. You are running your own family and you're attempting to score points by basically getting them to notice you and do what you want them to do via card play. Looking forward to that one turning up. I would have backed it anyway, but it also does look interesting. So... Florence and Dean Morris are two names to look out for in terms of what I've actually got come into my collection my birthday was a couple of weeks ago Sean was marvelous and he got me a copy of On Mars which I have been sniffing around I sniffed around the Kickstarter I was um and ah in about Lisboa I liked but I didn't like the scoring at the end which is why eventually I let it go On Mars, so many people say that it's one of his best games, Vitalis Erda, but obviously it's a very expensive game as well. I was a chore to take the plan. Sean did it for me, so thank you, Sean. I also picked up Photograph Wine the Film, which is a reprint by Matagot of Wine the Film, a Japanese car game for 2016. It's about set collection, but it's got a hand management thing A bit like Bonanza where you cannot change, well you can in a very limited way, change the order of cards in your hand. So you're drafting cards but it's not perfect information what you're drafting and then you're having to manage what's in your hand and you're having to put cards down in particular orders. And if you can't do it in the right order, you're going to punish yourself with minus points. So that is an interesting filler which I will be talking about probably next episode. And finally, Chaos Cards in the UK okay, UK had a summer sale this is not sponsored by the way <laughs> this is just a sale I clicked on that. I bought some games I managed to pick up three games for under 50 quid posted for the whole lot and they were Holly the uh, Festival of Colours H-O-L-I which uh, lots of people say interesting 45 minute game which looks amazing I picked up Cthulhu Wars Jewel now I've never played Cthulhu Wars but it's something that is definitely bigged up by many many people and I thought that the jewel would be a nice way in I've heard that the two sides are maybe not perfectly balanced, so I'm aware of that. But I got it on the cheap, so it would be nice to explore the system. And if I really love the system, then obviously I might look at plunging into the full game. And finally, Escape Tales now, this is the third Escape Tales, this is Children of Wormwood. It's from Board and Dice. The first one was we reviewed it a few times. We talked about it a few times was where you had a dad whose child was in a coma, and he sort of went into the underworld to find out what was going on with his child to get them out of where they were. And we really liked that. It was a very dark theme and, and very interesting. The second one they tried to do something interesting where are oh, they? The kind of like escape room games, puzzle games, by the way, narrative. And the second one they did was they tried to tell a story in the nearish future, but there was three chapters to it and each of the chapters showed a different perspective on the story which I loved the ambition and I liked the attempt but I didn't think they pulled off very well to be honest with you and I got a bit confused as to what was going on and I got a bit lost in what I was doing. The fact that again it was on sale Children of Wormwood I'm excited to give that a go at some point as well. So those are the five games that have come into my collection those are the reviews thank you very much for sticking with this i hope you enjoyed the episode and don't forget that we are members of the dice tower network head to the dicetower.com to get dice tower and lots of other amazing gaming content we will catch you next time out in the game pit our music is by e aaron in